0: Hello, and a warm welcome to my Asthma Spotlight Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Levy. I'm a family doctor with a special interest in asthma. My aim is to help people with asthma and also their caregivers to understand more about this disease and how to stay safe. I will share lots of information about asthma. However, I will not be able to answer any personal medical questions for which you should really consult your own doctor. The opinions I express in the Asma Spotlight podcast are my own and they are not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as medical, health or professional advice of any kind. Please do see the disclaimer details in the podcast description. Hello and welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Asthma Spotlight podcast. I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by my colleague, uh, Professor Andy Bush. Andy, hello. Um, Hi. I'm delighted to welcome you today. Why don't you introduce yourself
3: and tell us about who you are and what you do? So I'm Andy Bush. I work at the Brompton Hospital. I just see children with respiratory problems. I also do research at Imperial College. My big interests are in monitoring asthma, early life influences on asthma, and my biggest interest of all is my eight grandchildren. Delighted to hear that.
0: Okay, so Andy, to start off with, I know we've spoken quite a lot about uh, paediatric care versus adult care of asthma. So could you tell us a bit about what your thoughts are on the quality of paediatric asthma care in the UK? And also maybe some examples from other countries in the rest of the world.
3: Although there's no doubt in the UK that there are islands of really very good practice in primary and secondary care, there are also areas where things are not good in paediatric asthma. The basics are not got right. The whole thing is trivialized. Uh, asthma attacks are not taken seriously. All these things need attention. And part for me, part of the trouble is... I can call myself an asthma doctor and set myself up as an asthma clinic without, as far as I know, having to undergo any discernible training at all. I can just say I'm an asthma specialist.
0: That's a key problem and uh, is is a great concern, really, because especially in the UK, we've got so many people being treated for their asthma by um, or being delegated to be treated for their asthma by people who don't have adequate training, sometimes not even any training in asthma care and this is a great concern. Can you give examples of of good asthma care for children in, um, well, in the UK and also in other parts of the world?
3: Yes, I'm afraid I'm not ter- terribly familiar with a lot of care systems in the, in other parts of the world. I'm in the UK, as opposed to low and middle income countries, we have free access to medica- all the medications we need, which is fantastic, and there are undoubtedly good asthma clinics where. Children are seen regularly where the appropriate measurements are made, both for diagnosis and management. But some of the problems are that management is based on a diagnosis that is wrong. And people think, oh, I can diagnose asthma without doing any tests. Can you name me any other chronic disease where it's possible to do tests to support the diagnosis before committing somebody to medium to long-term treatment? And those tests aren't done. It just makes no sense. The other really important thing, and parents, if you're listening, what you really need to know is who is responsible for your child's asthma. Too often care is fragmented, and this is not meant as a, as a, as a shot at the GPs or anything like that. It's the way things are. You, you may, Your child may see somebody with an asthma attack and never see them again. There isn't that continuity. And you need to have somebody who's taking a life course view of your child's asthma. Who is responsible? For sure, they may not see that child every single time. That's the way of things. But who is the captain on the bridge? Who is responsible? That is the question. If I was a parent with a child with asthma, I would be asking.
0: That's such a fantastic point, really. I, I have addressed this in previous podcasts and tried to encourage people, parents of children, to learn as much as they possibly could about their asthma. and also Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, and when I interviewed uh, Bev Bostock, who's a specialist respiratory nurse, um, she advised parents to ask the healthcare professional that's seeing them whether they have been trained in asthma care or not, which I, I think is a good question to ask. Um, is Certainly. Primary care. Okay, so um, I know we've spoken a bit about inequalities in care Um, in um, children with asthma. And as a general practitioner, my problem has always been um, difficulty to find specialists who are paediatric experts in asthma, where I can refer children to. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts about this, where um, uh, healthcare resources seem to be focused more on adults than in children?
3: Yes, it's very frustrating, Mark. I mean, there is no question that adult asthma is a very different ball game. To take something that is obvious and can be measured, if you look at the studies that are done in the new asthma treatments in adults as compared to children, they are overwhelmingly done in adults. And the children are the forgotten sort of add-ons. You can manage them. This is the way we manage adults, so you can manage children the same way. Well, that's just not good enough. You know, I would not be happy for my six-year-old to be managed the way you might manage a 66-year-old. It just doesn't make sense. So there's that inequality. There's also inequality of of access to care, and and child poverty is clearly also a big factor in accessing care. Expectations, parental expectations. What do they What do they want? Are they actually being demanding and pushing for the best of care? My wife, before she retired, was a physiotherapist in neurodevelopment. And she used to say to, that, to the mothers, unless you've got a reputation for being a thoroughly disagreeable mother, you're not doing your job properly. Because I'm, And I'm afraid you're right. You know, the shy, retiring pilot gets nothing. Can I come back to a point you made earlier?
0: Why, why do you think that diagnosis of asthma in children is delayed for such a long time? I mean, I I've got experience in primary care of seeing children who... Um, have been um, transferred to my practice where children have obviously been coughing and wheezing for many years and nobody's written the word asthma in the medical records.
3: Yes, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I think part of this problem is the lack of, of a will to go on to investigate the coughing child. And I don't mean sending them to hospital. I mean doing certain simple things that can be done in primary care, like look, measuring their peak flow, um, you can order a chest X-ray. Failure to appreciate the red flag symptoms like a chronic wet cough, which is not due to asthma. And I see asthma as well, as you say, with a big diagnostic time lag. I also see children diagnosed with asthma who basically have no more have asthma than I do. And we've, we've got to get it right both ways. And what we've really got to get into our heads, I think, is that it's not good enough in 2023 to sit behind a desk, whoever you are, and just talk to the mother and on the basis of a bit of chit chat, say your child's got asthma, your child hasn't got asthma. Asthma is a serious condition and we've got to get that into our heads and missing the diagnosis is a problem and over-diagnosis is a problem.
0: I suppose one of the difficulties, and um, I I had a letter from a general practitioner the other day who listens to the podcast, and he's caring for a young child, six-year-old child, who has a history very suggestive of asthma. Dad's got asthma, and the child's had a previous um, a history of having had eczema, and um, the child's also recently needed nebulized treatment for an acute wheezing episode. Now, how would you advise um, doctors who who are having difficulty in, um, well, first of all, the doctors in having difficulty in making the diagnosis and Persuading parents that their child might have asthma. Um, I'll come on to the next question in a moment, but let's start with
3: that. Again, okay, I think in terms of assessing symptoms, one of the things that all of us do badly, including me, is use mobile phones. It's really helpful if you, if there's a doubt, because the word wheeze is often used. The word wheeze is often used very imprecisely. Clearly, if the child is ill and distressed, the mother shouldn't be reaching for her mobile phone to make a recording. But if you can get a recording of the noises that your child is making, that to me is incredibly valuable. So, is this the true whistling polyphonic expiratory wheeze like, like that, or is this a different noise and need a different approach? So, I first of all be really sure this is wheeze. For a six year old with a bit of tuition, you ought to be able to get a peak foot uh, to do peak flow monitoring. And just see, do a peak do a peak flow in the surgery. Give the child some, some short-acting beta agonist through a, a spacer. Now, if the peak flow is normal, there won't be any change. Send the child away with a peak flow meter for two weeks, no more, because everybody gets bored after that time. And say, can you do it morning and evening? And at the weekend, not at school, because it's too much for the school, if they're running around and getting breathless, do a peak flow afterwards. Do a peak flow if you're going to give the child some short-acting beta agonist and see, see if it improves. These are the sorts of things you can, you can do in primary care and in secondary care. Ultimately, you may it, it may be that you have to do a therapeutic trial and say, well, look, we're going to try for six weeks uh, or whatever arbitrary time frame with, a, with an inhaled steroid. If they don't get it, we'll stop at six weeks because either they're better and you don't know whether it's because you're a frightfully clever doctor, or they're going to get better anyway, or they're not better, and there's probably not asthma, and you need to look elsewhere. And then you only restart the treatment if they've got better, and relax when the treatment is stopped. Those are the sorts of the sorts of approaches that I, I would take. Uh, in an older child, child, if you've got access to things like exhaled nitric oxide, that's good, but you don't need, you don't not everybody has access and you can, it would be ridiculous to say you can't diagnose asthma without an exhaled nitric oxide but i think the principle that you should be doing some tests and and finding out what's going on is a good one and the more tests that are negative the less likely the asthma diagnosis becomes
0: thank you that's a, a very helpful uh, description which i'm sure um, healthcare professionals and patients will find useful um Can you tell us a bit more about nitric oxide? Because I'm a bit concerned that it's being used as the ultimate test for asthma. And uh, my colleagues are being taught that um, you've got to do nitric oxide and spirometry to diagnose asthma in anybody. If you haven't done those, then you can't make the diagnosis.
3: Nitric oxide is one of many tests that can be helpful. But as you know, Mark, there is no one diagnostic test for asthma. What no one rule in rule out. It's not like TB, where if you see the acid alcohol fast bacilli in the sputum, you know where you are. So, nitric oxide can be elevated in uncontrolled asthma, it can be elevated in those who have a topic disease, such as eczema, or without having asthma. My best use of it, I think, is if I've seen somebody who people are thinking have asthma. It's having a lot of symptoms, and the nitric oxide is completely normal. That, to me, is a red flag. If the nitric oxide is high, it's supportive of asthma, but it's not diagnostic. And again, you know, the art of the possible. A six-year-old may well have atopic, allergic, type 2 inflammation-driven asthma, but be unable to do spirometry and be unable to do nitric oxide. Now, you can't just... Neither of us would just sit on our hands and say, we'll come back in two years' time when the child can do these tests. That would be absurd. But I think always, and again, parents, ask your doctors, what tests have been attempted to try to document the diagnosis of asthma? If you attempt and fail, well, so be it. Try again in six months' time. But note down that the diagnosis of asthma is only based on a history, which may or may not be correct. Thank you. Thanks.
0: That's very clear. So, okay, so in a child that has been diagnosed, and this was the other question that the doctor asked me, although he hasn't really confirmed the diagnosis yet. um, Let's say a child has been diagnosed with asthma. We know that we have both probably had experience of many patients, parents who are reluctant to um, take inhaled corticosteroids for their children. Now, how, how, how do you explain to a parent, or what sort of objections do you hear from parents, and how do you explain to parents that um, anti-inflammatory treatment is really important in the management of asthma, and even in trying to make a diagnosis of asthma?
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
3: Yeah, I think it takes time. And I think parents quite rightly do not want to give medications to their child. You know, no, no, no mother or father wants to do that. I think it takes time. You hopefully by discussing with the parents saying, okay, maybe even for a short trial and Flipping back, Mark, to what you, we were saying about children being left out, increasingly, as you know, Gina is recommending for 12 and over, instead of using the blue one, the short-acting beta agonist, the Ventolin, you could be using a combined inhaler of, of uh, formoterol and budesonide as a reliever therapy. And I don't know if we've got time to go into the advantages of this, but it's, uh, they are very clear-cut, and I'm completely behind Gina. But six to yes. 11. Sorry, Andy. Yes. Um, Gino, of course, is
0: the international Sorry, bio- yes. document for asthma. Sorry, please. Yep. Continue. No,
3: absolutely. And they're, they're a, a widely respected body with people drawn from all over the world. I think they even include you, Mark, don't they? But, they're, they're no, but no, no body is perfect. And... <laughs> and uh, but this is where there there aren't the data in children six to eleven. Now there are studies ongoing. There's one in, in New Zealand that's finished recruiting. Louise Fleming is heading up a study in the UK. But actually, to say if to use the combined inhaler there's lots of data that using the combined inhaler, and that may be an easy sell easier sell to parents saying, look, just give this inhaler when your child needs it, and hopefully, if your diagnosis is right, hopefully they will sit they will see when when treatment is given it works and if i could interject one of my own sons was diagnosed with asthma when he was 3 and i should in all humility say that i missed the diagnosis i thought he was malingering uh, he was, these were the days, really, before inhaled steroids were so front and center. He was trialed on various things like theophylline and, and Intel and that stuff. When he started low dose inhaled steroids, his life was turned around, and you know, it it made the case. We didn't want to give him steroids, but by golly, they made a difference.
0: That's interesting. For full disclosure, I I, I also I coughed for about three months. Um, and was prescribed cough mixtures by my GP. I mean, this was quite a long time ago. And having done a specialist respiratory intensive care job, I missed the diagnosis in myself, which was quite funny, really. When wow. I'm sorry. Yep. I, I am actually interviewing uh, Professor Richard Beasley in a few weeks' time. And so we'll go into the advantages and disadvantages of the combined therapy then. But thank you for mentioning that, because I, I am a firm believer in that therapy um so now another question really and that relates to growth in children related to asthma and the asthma treatments um i've always understood and been taught in the past that um growth affected by inhaled corticosteroids is a transient effect in children and that it's it's not something that persists into adulthood. they usually catch up later is this still the case
3: yes i mean mark the best show in town is the camp study which was a North American study, which has now gone on for many years. Interestingly, the original camp question is completely irrelevant, but it has produced marvelous data. So the camp data are, and the and patients who had a fixed dose of inhaled steroids, not like clinical practice where you might actually taper down the down it. So if anything, they were over-treated. The maximum loss of height over the whole of childhood was half a centimeter. And that's the, that, that, that's the maximum. And and I would say so I can be very reassuring about that. What I also do is plot the child on a standard growth chart and the parents and I can look at it together. Because if that child is not growing well, there's something funny going on. Is there another diagnosis to be made? Am I over-treating the child with inhaled steroids? But low-dose inhaled steroids have a very good track record where growth is concerned.
0: So, um would you advise general practitioners and uh, parents um to um, be um, careful about monitoring growth in their children
3: I don't think you need to be excessively careful I would monitor I would monitor height we see we see our problematic asthmatics every three months they get their height measured every every three months uh, I'm not sure whether that's practical in primary care but a couple of times a year, but plot them on a chart I and mean, parents are familiar with charts they've got the red book every every uk parent has the red book with their initial growth plotted out just plot it out there are electronic versions these days and just to reassure everybody and also you know to show parents that you're taking their concerns seriously they're not being brushed away as, as as nonsense
0: okay now we spoke a little bit about treatment um another treatment that's advocated um in the uk by the nice guidelines um is the uh, leukotriene receptor antagonist uh, monty lucast now the american federal drug administration have issued warnings about this drug in and i i have uh, colleagues who've had experience where children become mentally disturbed on this drug and yet we haven't had such a warning in the united kingdom about this drug what are your thoughts about um Monte Lucas, what's its place in us and what are the risks and dangers?
3: So if I'm starting Monte Lucas, I always warn the parents about the sort of psychiatric, neuropsychiatric side effects you've described and the prevalence may be as high as 20%. And Francine Duchamp, whom you well know, tells the story about how she prescribed these to a colleague's daughter and two days later gets a phone call saying, what have you done? You've turned my little princess into a bitch. And um, you know they do have these side effects. In my experience, about five to ten percent of patients think that's absolutely marvellous. They've life transforming. They're great. Um, The rest just think it makes no difference. I think they're over-prescribed. They can be very effective. And again, per- personal pra- non-practice, uh, one of my grandchildren was, by his, was prescribed them by his GP. I didn't find out until after he'd started them and he was absolutely fine and did very well on them. So they can be effective. But I think one thing we've all got to be aware of, doctors are great at saying, do this, do that, do more, do more, do more, and not so great at, back, at backing off and saying, Uh, let's stop this this isn't any good
0: okay so now on asthma outcomes um, outcomes like um, asthma attacks hospitalizations and asthma deaths um why why do you think that the uk outcomes are not as good as other countries in fact in the case of childhood asthma deaths we're
3: among the worst in the whole of
0: europe Why why do you think that is
3: there are multiple reasons in my in my in my view. The first is the disease is not taken seriously. Anybody can treat asthma. It's just it's fine. Um, it's just not taken seriously. The second is lack of continuity and lack of appreciation that an asthma attack is a serious red flag life event. Just giving three days of prednisolone and, and then come back in three months is not good enough. We know from all the literature that a child who's had a bad attack of asthma (coughs) will have another bad attack, as sure as God made little apples, unless something is done. So if a child has had an asthma attack, there needs to be a focused look. What went wrong? Why did this child end up on steroids? Is the child taking their medication? Can they take their medication? Is there something in the environment? What did the asthma plan say and should the asthma plan be changed? It's really important that this is taken seriously. But unfortunately, what usually happens is they rock up to secondary care. They get their steroids. There isn't any follow-up. It's a bit treated a bit like a lobar pneumonia. You know, if, As you know, Mark, if you have a, a child who has a, a one attack of a lobar pneumonia, you say, well, I'm jolly sorry that happened, but it's okay. That's fine. It's an isolated event. An asthma attack is not like that. And we've simply got to take them more take them more seriously. And you know monitor things, as you, as you know, you were one of the authors of the National Review of Asthma Deaths. What what came out yet again? Not enough inhaled steroids, too much short-acting beta agonist. Well, in these electronic days, you can monitor that. You know, you should be able to to t- t- say how many inhaled steroid canisters are being picked up. How many thought-acting beta-agonist canisters are being picked up? We've got to take this more seriously, that asthma is a killing disease. It's not a trivial inconvenience. Yeah, you know, It's very sad, really, isn't it? Hmm?
0: I must say, after all the work we did with the National Review of Asthma Deaths in the United Kingdom, it's very sad to still be hearing of children who are dying from asthma and the high numbers of children who are being admitted to hospital with asthma attacks. So as we come to the end of this interview, Andy, I'm really grateful for all your time. Thank you very much. And so if, if you were to um, sum up with one or two key messages, one for parents of children with asthma and, and one for doctors who are caring for children with asthma, what, what would you say are the most important things
3: to think about? So I think for parents, I'd want that I'd want them to be saying to the doctor, Why do you think my child has asthma? What tests have you done? And it may be the tests have been tried and can't be done, and that's fine. But have you tried? Who is the doctor who is taking overall responsibility for my my child's asthma? And if your child has an asthma attack, this is something really serious, and it needs to be taken seriously. What's going to be done to prevent that happening again? I think those would be the three questions. I think I'd probably say the same for the for the for the doctor for doctors as well as, well, as to be asking themselves that.
0: Well, that's a very good uh, place to to end this discussion. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for your time, and um, just for those of you that are listening, Andy Bush is one of the top experts in the whole world. So it's been a great pleasure and an honor, Andy, for you to join us today
2: in this podcast. Thank you once again. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark.
0: Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you found this helpful, and I hope you did, please click the like and the follow buttons and share this podcast. Please do send me any feedback or questions to my email address, asthmaspotlight at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to answer these in future episodes.